Hey, Eater Upsell Cateers. On today's show, we have a very special guest. It's Barbara Lynch, who is one of like the biggest chef restaurateur people in Boston. She has eight restaurants, but one thing we're really excited to talk with her about is she just published a great memoir called Out of Line that is not like any other chef memoir you've probably read before. Um, she steals a bus in it. She steals a bus. Um, Whitey <laughs> Bulger like pushes her out of the way of a halo of bullets. I mean, it, this, this book's got everything. So, uh, Barbara, we're super excited to talk with you today. Thank you. I'm so excited to talk about it. I'm glad you, you you hit some good spots on that one. Oh, thanks. This book is, we tried. This book we tried. is really something. Yeah. Well, we're going to talk to you about all of that, what it's like to basically put Boston on the culinary map, and also about your iconic status as a James Beard award-winning outstanding restaurateur in just a second. But first, I just want to remind all of you to subscribe to the Eater Upsell if you're not already subscribed. Give us a five-star rating on the iTunes store if you haven't already, and make sure that your friends and loved ones know how cool this podcast is and that they should be subscribing to it also. Welcome to the show, Barbara. Thank you. What's your memoir called? Out of Line. Out of Line. I love it. I love I love the the food puns that culinary memoirs get to have they kind of have yeah i know i like i love this title it actually fits me really well <laughs> so barbara i was looking back at some of our um our previous coverage of you and your restaurants and i found a chat from two, 2014 where you said you were halfway through this book writing mm. it um so how long did this thing take all all things considered um i god i feel like it took forever but it uh, i want to say about five years um, wow. my yeah, first ghostwriter quit right in the middle of it. I think she had a meltdown and I was like, fuck, my life isn't that bad. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> and, and so then I was like, oh my God, I, I, this is great. I don't have to write this. And, uh, of course now my agent was like, no, you are writing this book. So, so did you find a new ghostwriter? Yeah. 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 She's great. Tiny four foot nine Upper East Side woman who is fierce. She's like 72 and she is awesome. I love that you're so open about working with a co-writer. Oh, God, what? Yeah. Every other word would have been the F word, I think. But uh, no, she was amazing. And she got my voice, which is uh, which is incredible. Yeah, she did a great job. Are there secrets to capturing your voice besides just saying fuck constantly? Well, I think the Boston accent and uh, probably the one-liners. I think in Boston, I don't know. How, have you been to Boston? I have. Yes, quite a lot. <clears throat> so everything is plural. You know, I'm going to drinks. I'm going to go to Sportello's. So there's a sort of language or lingo that she caught, which was spot on. Is she from Boston? No, she's from, from New York. She's just a talented mimic. She's great. We were, we were talking about this book yesterday in the office and just kind of saying that it sounds like you're just kind of spitting your story here. Like it, it feels like you're sitting next to someone who is telling you their life story, yeah. you know? Well, I guess Jacques just read it. So Jacques Pepin's like, oh, my God, she's a great writer. And uh, and then my and then. Carrie Buckman's like, no, no, I mean, she had a, she had help, but he's like, no, this is her. This is her voice. This is amazing. So kudos to Elisa Petrini. She was my ghostwriter. That's fantastic. Yeah, she's great weaving the story. She was awesome. Have you been tracking your life through your whole life? Have you been keeping uh -huh. journals? Do you record things or was I've this just... journals my whole life since I was five. Little ones, like, you know, and then, of course, the journals are never finished, so there's... Um, Tons of journals I have, just of like just journeys and so forth. And I think it was just part of my um, way of saying I got to get out of the projects. I just don't want to live here. You know, I don't want to. I just didn't want to be like everyone else and single parent and married and alcoholic or whatever. So yeah. Did your friends growing up have you given them the book? Have they checked it out? Oh yeah. Your family and stuff. What what do they think? I haven't heard from the family yet, but uh, well, cousins are they they love it. They think it's very brave. Um, and my friends are, yeah, they're in it. They're in it. Most of them are in it. So yeah. um, they love it. They said, great job. Looks great. For our listeners who maybe have not picked up the book yet, I, I don't know how possible this is. Can you give us the the, the Cliff's Notes version of your of your life story? It's a, it's. I mean, it's a remarkable book. Your stories are your experiences are are outrageous. Well, I think it's just the story of. Like I always say, from how to get from point A to point B without a uh, formal education, uh, well, zero education, zero financial background, um, and now, you know, eight restaurants later, how the hell did I do it? And um, 
being with severe ADD and dyslexic, it was just how the Christ did she get here, you know? And uh, so that's the story. Sticking to it. <laughs> Some of the stops along the way are, are like, I mean, stranger than fiction kind of things. The Whitey Boulder story yeah. was incredible. And stealing a bus or trying to trying to steal a that bus. That was awesome. That was fun. So you really did that, <laughs> yeah. huh? We got like about a half a mile up the street and... Then That's we, significant. The steering wheel was bigger than my head. I mean, can you? I'm 13, and the you know the steering wheel on an MBTA bus is like bigger than my body. But we did it. It was so funny. But don't do that at home. No. I mean, kids. I, I hope my daughter doesn't do it. Put it that way. She's 13. Who who among us has not tried to steal a bus at some point? And I have not ever no? tried to steal a bus. That's exciting. Yeah, it try. seems I should. It's a good idea. Mm-hmm. I guess if I, if we I stole a lot of stuff as a kid. Yeah. I, yeah. Not 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 like to be mean, but I mean I don't think it's in the book. It'll have to be in the next one <laughs> about Bermuda. The we stuff used to go I to stole Bermuda by Barbara Lynch. Wait, you go to Bermuda every weekend. We would go to Bermuda on stolen credit cards because um, we were um, on flying on People's Express. I don't know. You're probably too young, but they would you know uh, put the card in up in the air. So and then in order to get back from Bermuda, we would steal another credit card to get back. We would siphon gas from mopeds. I would probably have to do some sort of, like, stint in a liquor store, and my friends would just walk out with tons of liquor for a booze cruise. It was crazy. Wait, I, I'm stuck on this. You flew to Bermuda on an airplane. So you would just, like, get on the plane, and they would process your ticket once you were on there, or, like, be yeah. on a train or something right. like that. And then they just swing the – put the credit card through. Through the manual, like, right. chunk, chunk kind of back-and-forth reader. I guess the- I mean, how are you not just – terrified that entire time of getting busted or caught or something. I know, right? Just didn't just didn't think you're fearless, right? Cl- yeah. It could be fearless, it could be clueless at the time too. It could be a, a little bit of both. Like ironclad badass. Canals <laughs> <laughs> of Steel, I guess. Canals of Steel. That's the title of your next book, right? Canals of Steel. <laughs> We're coming up with all these great ideas for the title of your next book, which I'm sure is not written yet, but maybe will be someday. I, I want an entire book about stealing I stealing credit cards to go to Bermuda and stealing cards to get back. I love that. There's just something pretty crafty. so elegant about that. I think I was pretty crafty on making money as a young kid. So there are a lot of um, chef memoirs out there. I think this is a really great one. Um, I mean, I'm really, I'm reading it right now. I really love it. What did you, why did you feel like you had to write this book? And what, what, what did you hope um, by sharing with your story that, that you would, you know, achieve? First, I didn't feel like I had to write it. I felt like, um, why do I have to write a memoir? I, I, what comes after that is like the Lifetime Achievement Award. So, um, but my agent said, no, you, you know, she sought me out. She found, she, she read an article in the New York Times business section about me and eight restaurants and Whitey Bulger, blah, blah, blah. She said, you need to tell your story. And I said, no, I don't. I don't really need to. But she talked me into it. And, um, you know, as I was writing it, I felt like this is very cathartic. And when you're writing a memoir, you almost have to go back to where you were. Like, so I would go visit um, the Quencher or the L Street Diner, whatever, wherever I hung. It's almost like you relive that while you're writing it. And then um, the fact that I'm still in Boston was a lot, It's e- it was easier because I'm still with my, fr- I haven't changed, quite frankly. I'm still the same person, but uh, a lot busier, I guess. So, um, I felt like just what you said, you, you, you laughed, you, you're shocked, you're, um, intrigued and you want to keep on reading. And I feel like at the end of this book, I hope you get inspired or I, I, I really hope that the masses, the kids who grew up in projects or whoever, not only to open a restaurant, but just to do anything you want, like to really have a dream and just go for it and like, don't let anything stand in your way. Because as you can see, I think I had no help whatsoever with my mother or life in general. It's just say a prayer to God that you're doing the right thing. And I felt comfortable in a kitchen. So that's what I wanted. How did you find that comfort? Um, Well, so it's very chaotic in a kitchen. And for some reason, I felt very calming. And um, where that was the one place I could really just focus and and not be all over the place. So <clears throat> I felt like it was um, a great place to be. And I also like the camaraderie that you get in the kitchen. 
And then I did have that, like, little tough side of me that wouldn't let anyone fucking touch my dish or, you know, don't, you know. And I gained respect in the kitchen, which I think um, made me feel really good, too. So I kept going. Did you have a sense when you were starting in the kitchen that you would be at this point, that you would be, a, you know, having won the biggest beard award that a restaurateur can win and, and mm. having this empire and this book and being this, no. you know. Oh, God, no. I mean, really? <laughs> I thought I'd own a sub shop or a steak tip joint and on a corner in Southie. Um, it's not too late for that. No. <laughs> I would totally go to your steak tip joint. I, oh, my please, brother, please open that up. My brother is well known for his steak tips, so it would be a competitive thing. Uh, Does he have a restaurant? He, he works for his daughter now. We just opened, I helped her open a pizza joint in Quincy, Mass., and his, the, his dish is on the menu, and it's called Paul Leo Lynch's Steak Tips. I love steak tips. I Me too. I, Fries so and those big peppers, the yeah. pickled pepper. So good. So good. I want them on more restaurant menus. So rel- relatively uh, early in your career, you worked at f- uh, Figs, uh, Todd English's Figs. Todd English is a guy who I feel like has been an eater punching bag, at least on Eater New York, because he's <laughs> opened some really terrible restaurants here. But... Figs back in the day, that was like the hot spot. Like that was like a pretty, pretty serious, serious place. What, what was that? You know, what was, was that great. like? Yeah, um, I helped him come up with that concept. Oh no way! Um, he had a vision. Like figs was olives first, so it was tiny olives, and that's where I worked with him on the line. And then he had a chance to grow and move up the street to a larger space. So he wanted to know what to do with fig, uh, with olives, baby olives. So he always wanted to do a pizza joint and I was like, great. And so he put me in charge and I did, he and I did the research about Neapolitan pizza and the art of making pizza. So I just wanted to do pizza, antipasti, and that was it. Were were there figs on the pizza? Oh God, my favorite one. Yeah. Fig jam. So um, fig jam, gorgonzola, and then fire the pizza. And then when it comes out, it's just like very thinly sliced prosciutto, extra virgin olive oil, scallions, and pepper. That sounds amazing. It's freaking delicious. You did not grow up, uh, you know, in a in an Italian household. I mean, you cooked some Italian things, but like, what was the what was the the, the thing that got you really into that and exploring that kind of food? I mean, you traveled a little bit, yeah. but like, what was like the moment? Like basil you know? was very exotic and salty. I mean, you couldn't find fresh basil to save your life. But um, it was my opportunity was um, when I first went to Italy. I was actually working for Todd at a restaurant called Michaela's in Cambridge. And, um, you know, I was in way over my head. So it was about a half an hour train ride from Southie to Cambridge. So I would read The Foods of Italy by Waverly Root. Probably I read the whole thing backwards and then then backwards again. I, probably, I read it like five times. And so I fell in love with um, the Italian culture. There's no pictures in this book. So it just tells you about each region and and the products and, and the grandmothers in the kitchen, et cetera. And um, that's what turned me into – I wanted to try Italian food. And then I finally went over to Italy and cooked for Sarah Jenkins's wedding. And I just fell in love with the culture, quite frankly. And I fell in love with that they were solid families and that they really lived um, by food, not by a title or by wealth. It was just a good place. It felt really good to be there. How often do you get to go over there? Oh, a lot. Yeah. You, know, you think I would speak Italian, but my daughter is like fluent in it. She's, it it's crazy. Um, last year I was over there five times and I just got back three days ago from uh, Ligoria and Monton, France. And I had like two and a half weeks over there. It was great. So what do you do when you go to Italy? Uh, eat. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> do you plan it all out ahead of time? Are you like, all right, this day we're going here, this day we're going here? Or do you just sort of like well, immerse? This was, a, this was a tour. So I was taking like 40 people around my favorite places in San Remo and Ligoria and Monton, France and Nice, the markets. Um, you know, ideally, I'd love to um, have an Airbnb where we can go to the market and cook because it's brutal going breakfast, lunch, dinner, and they're three and a half hours long. So I gained a little weight on that trip. <laughs> <laughs> do a lot of walking and work it off. Yeah, you do. So you were, you were working with Todd, um, you know, at some hot restaurants. And uh, how did you, uh, like, what was the step where you broke away and did your own thing? How'd you come to that conclusion? Well, this my wine director, who I work with now, and we've been working together for like 32 years. So um, wow. When I was the chef at Figs, she would come in with her boss, and um, I guess you'd call it poaching. So she was trying to get me to go over to Rocco's 
where she was working because she was the first female sommelier and she, her, the food that they had at Rocco's was not ideal for the wines that she wanted. So she found me and then poached me and I thought about it and I was ready because two years at Figs was brilliant. It was a great opportunity for me to like open my own restaurant. I, you know, I had to order everything. I had to do everything. I had to hire people. And so I wanted that next step because Figs was just pizza and pasta and I wanted appetizers, entrees, dessert. I wanted the full restaurant experience. And so that was my next step. And he was very mad <laughs> when I left. Oh, yeah. I don't know if you yeah, if you got to the part in the book where he... I haven't yeah, yet. I'll, I'll let what, you read it. What, wait, no. What, give us a hint. <laughs> well, we had this beautiful brick oven um, where we fired the pizzas. And I also would make the bread in the morning. So I just loaded it with beautiful bread, right? I say, um, well, I, I'm going to leave... Um, and he's like, well, why? And I'm like, well, because I'm, I'm bored. I need to do more. And he's like, fucking Lynchy. Well, you know, you stupid. You should have told me. And he took his Coca-Cola bottle and just whipped it at me. And I, I ducked and it went right into the oven, glass all over the bread. I ran down the street out one door. He ran the other. And then we just started screaming at each other in the street. And I just said, listen, I've been with you for eight years. You should be so proud of me. You should, like, if, it, if I don't like the job, I'll come back. But I need to have that chance, and uh, you should be, you know, fucking happy for me instead of trying to kill me here. Yeah, well, you got to have opportunities for, you know, people that you work with to grow, and, you know, you got to understand when they want to do something different. It's one of the, yeah, it's one of the lessons I learned what not to do from him, um, was to treat your people with dignity and set them up for success. And then you want them to leave, and you want them to be brilliant when they leave, and then, and then you want them, you want to see them succeed. I don't think he was up for that. Did you always want to have a, a grupo of, you know, eight restaurants? Or did you think, yeah, I'll start with one and maybe this will be my, you know, mm. my home base? And No, I, I, I never knew I'd have this. I, I, I never knew I'd have eight restaurants. But what I did love is that, you know, when you're driving and you see a beautiful building, you're like, oh, that would be a great bar or that would be a great restaurant. And also Boston, you know, I mean, we're going through this huge growth spurt now, but 20 years ago there was really... There's no oyster bars. There's no butcher shop. There was zero good Italian restaurants unless you were in the North End. So why not, right? And each restaurant that I have is very nostalgic to me. So it's it, it's based on an experience that I've had, which is which is great. Boston has been a an interesting restaurant city over the years. I yeah. I dated a guy who lived in Boston when I was in college, which is how I got to know the city. I would spend lots of weekends there and. The college student experience of Boston is its own totally separate bubble. And mm. I think it's... I don't go to that side. Yeah. It's, never did. <laughs> well, it, was, it, it gave me a sense of the city that was, you know, when I when I started going back regularly again six, seven years later, I was like, whoa, whoa, no, I was not walking in the same reality that right. I am stepping into right now. Yeah. I'm very used to the downtown Boston, southie, Charlestown kind of area, Dorchester, like the real... Heart of South, uh, the real heart of Boston, yeah. blue collar workers, sheet metal workers, iron workers that just built Boston, basically. Why do you think it is that it's taken Boston longer than it's taken other American cities to kind of come into the uh, probably the world of restaurants? I, I can just say it's probably more political than anything. You know, with the way Men- Menino didn't get along with City Councilor Kelly, and that puts a damper on growth, and so you need more demographics. Larger demographics to succeed in the restaurant industry. So, once this explosion happened about eight years ago, it was um, good timing. Yeah, yeah. So you've kept uh, you've grown an empire and kept it in Boston. Mm. You always want to stay in Boston. Do you ever? I'm sure you must get offers sometimes to do stuff elsewhere. I, but is that anything you would ever entertain? Oh yeah, and you never say no. Um, I'm just not the turnkey kind of kid. You know, I'm like you can't just drop me in Vegas and. Here, here's my right. name, right? I can't do that. So um, I love being part of my community. And um, I, have to, my, my, I have to have a purpose, and my restaurants have to have a purpose. So I don't feel comfortable going into anybody else's city without being, having a really good purpose. And uh, so that's why I probably stayed in Boston. That's cool. What's like an average night, like if you're at, you know, you're working, are you going from restaurant to restaurant? Or are you like, I'm... I'm going to pop into this place or I'm going to stay at this one place or 
I sneak eat in. there, be in the kitchen. Yeah. I'm in touch with my chefs every night, and I'm still writing menus. So now my chefs will come to me and we'll work together for a couple of days to get to know each other better and trying to teach them simplicity, less is more, right? And um, it's been – it's a great experience. When I go to the restaurants, I'm not cooking on the line. There's no room for me, plus I'll drive them up a wall. So um, I do go in to all of them, not, you know, all on the same day. But um, when I do go in, it's so funny. They have code words like turkey on the gravy or bone and ribeye. <laughs> really? Yeah. Like if you sh- – it's like yeah. Elvis has entered the building. Yeah, kind of like, like snap up. And then I'm not even, you know, I'm not even mean. So uh, – I'm just proud of my whole crew. Do you ever do like a secret diner thing, like put on a wig, go into the dining room, have dinner? No, no, but believe me, if I'm not happy, I am. They know it. Yeah. So I don't need a wig. (laughs) One thing I think is really interesting about your presence in Boston is that at several of your restaurants, you have classes just as part of the identity. At Number Nine Park, you regularly do cocktail classes. At yeah. B&G Oysters, you do shucking classes. Like Education's huge for me because I'm self-taught. Um, and, I mean, I felt I'm way behind. You know, I need a, I have to catch up to be a chef, right? So um, I don't want people to have to catch up. I think the more knowledge you know and the better it is, the stronger you become. So we're big with education. Do you have a class for every restaurant? Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. How do you develop those? Like, how do you decide we're going to do oyster shucking or we're going to do cocktails instead of doing, I don't know, wine pairings or whatever it might be? Well, a lot has to do with the bartender or, you know, the craft of what they're doing is it's not a mystery. It shouldn't be a mystery. We should be able to share it. Take all the mystery out of cooking. Um, Ideally, I want everybody to cook at home but also come to my restaurant. So, you know, it's just the basics of cooking and knife skills. And, um, you know, if you can get that down, then you can just grow from there. So that's kind of what we try to instill in people. How do you think people should do that balance between cooking at home and going out to restaurants? I think, like, you know, for Greg and I, this is like the constant battle. And for a lot of people in our job, like, I love cooking at home, but I also love going out to eat. Yeah. I don't I, know. I mean, I think it gets harder now, right, to go out to eat It's because you're so busy. And if you have kids, it's like, oh, God, do they have valet? Do they take reservations? I'm so tired, right? Um, and I used to go out to eat a lot. And you can't because you can't do that every night, right? But you can do it once a week. And But if you're cooking healthy food or good food with your kids or anything with your roommates, it's kind of fun to kind of be able to converse and have a great dinner. A lot of times at a restaurant, it's just too, uh, you know, it's disappointing. What if you drop 150 bucks and you're like, this sucked. I'd rather spend it at the grocery store and and put my effort into cooking at home and have an enjoyable night. When you walk into a restaurant, not one of your own, do you feel like you can tell whether it's going to be worth it? Yeah, usually. What are the clues? The menu outside, how it reads, um, pricing take a look at a wine list and then definitely like if the service is great and they're hospitable, you know, you got a winner no matter what, because it seems like there's an equal balance, food, wine, service. That's a good balance, right? Barbara, you've uh, won some awards, including uh, some James Beard Awards, Outstanding Restaurateur. That's like the big one. That's like the big money right. award. That was a good one. I was, I had no clue like that, really? how big that was. <laughs> Did you have a feeling you were going to win? Oh, God, no. No, no. But when I did win, it was amazing because after you win the award, you go backstage and it was uh, Mario Batali and Keller, Thomas Keller, who were like, finally, finally, a woman won. But not only that, it's like a chef-owned restaurant. She got, you got this award and that... Then it dawned on me how big it is. This is huge. So, um, yeah, I'm pretty happy with that one. Yeah. The Beards have have had kind of a woman difficulty for the last, well, forever, really, I guess. Beards and many other things. The world's 50 best list. Yeah. But you were were only the second ever woman to win Outstanding Restaurateur, which is a travesty. (laughs) I know, right? Right. Like, it should not be an exciting talking point that you were a woman. I think it'll change now because... 
I think at that time there was just um, Lydia Bastianich, myself, and maybe Suzanne Gowen, who are women running their own companies, their own business, and more than one. But um, I see a lot more coming down the pike. Yeah? Yeah. The future looks rosy. Future's looking bright. So did that, winning that award, did that change anything for you, like, like business-wise or just professionally? Like, did you find more people were like, hey, I want to say what's up or I want to, I'm traveling to your restaurant or anything? Um, no, it didn't really change us, really. I mean, I made my team, made my staff really proud. I was, it's always nice to come home from New York City with an award, right? Sure. To come home with a big one was, was um, yeah, you know, you pat yourself on the back for a day and then it's back to business. You can't really settle on that. Um, you can't. So I teach that too. It's just like, let's keep going. Where do you keep your medal? The Beard Awards, if, if anybody <laughs> listening doesn't know, you, they give you a literal medal. They like put it around your neck like you're, you know, receiving an honor from the queen. Yeah, I just keep them. My, my daughter has them. I keep them in her room, hang them on a hook. That's so cool. <laughs> I mean, I, they're heavy. They are. <laughs> it's not like you can. Yeah, you guys both have them. Well, you know, we. Yeah, we all do. What do you do well. with yours? Uh, yeah, it's 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 like on the side of my bookcase next to my bed. Right. I think we could yeah. we could get together and make a belt or a yeah, necklace. totally. We can grab a couple. Walk of down these. the street. Yeah, that would be a cool. Kind of <laughs> grab a couple Sunny more chefs style and belts, writers, you know? and like we could all just sort of make a big chain. Like a, yeah, that'd be fun. That'd be fun. We can do that with our try to break through this chain, right? Yeah, exactly. How fun would that be? That would be really Put Nancy neat. Silverton in there and Gabrielle Hamilton. Yeah, you got a party. Me. Yeah, perfect. So, if you're a chef and you want to work at a Barbara Lynch restaurant, what what do you need to have? Do you need to have prior experience? Do you need to have gone to culinary school? No. Do you need to have canals of steel? You have to have passion. <laughs> no, you have to have passion. I I can't teach you passion, but I can teach you how to cook. And I prefer that they don't come from other restaurants because bad habits. I hate cleaning up bad habits. And um, so I like to get them young and passionate. Like and a, I can teach them. Like the Jesuits, right? <laughs> it's like, what was the, like, they're like, give us someone by seven years old and we will. Give us know. the man sure. at six. And I'm just botching. I don't these know. I'm botching Catholic it too quotes as that well. I don't know enough about. But yeah, that. Passion so, and teamwork. Passion. So what are some of the bad habits that you feel like you see too often? Sloppiness. Tongs. I hate tongs. Um, really? I hate them. Even but for pasta I, and like twisting the pasta in the pan? We use a fourchette. Uh, and I'm kind of over the tweezers, but they are necessary at times with shrivel. Sometimes you got a tweezer, you know? What's a fourchette? It's like a fork, two-pronged fork, uh, the long one. Yeah. Yeah. Tongs just give me a nightmare. When I was on the line, I just remember dirty chef pants with slimy tongs in the back pocket and then they put them on the oven door and then you'd open the oven door and the tongs would get smashed and then they'd touch fish with it and I just fuck it just freaks me out so we use spoons and um foreshadow for pasta sorry I didn't mean to gross you out no no it was that was a a visceral vivid (laughs) description I was making a very disgusted face while you're doing that (laughs) you really really painted a picture with a few words yeah (laughs) tongs man how long did it take you to perfect plating pasta? I feel like this is something that all oh. home cooks struggle with. Is like my plate of pasta is hideous and restaurant pasta is beautiful. I haven't perfected that yet, but mm. hopefully I haven't. Um, you know, you know, pastas. Uh, I don't, do, do you make fresh pasta at home? I do not make my own pasta, but I will often purchase fresh pasta. Let's try to make it. It's like um, one of those things that. You grow into loving how to make it, and you'll never really keep a recipe. It's like whatever mood you're in. Um, usually, that's how I base how many eggs I put in it. Um, but it becomes so. Uh, I become passionate with it. I mean, I, I put on my earphones and make pasta all day, so I love it. I used to in the kitchen. Now at home, I just crank the music and make pasta all day. What's your favorite pasta? Like dish, if you're just like I'm gonna make a, a pasta dish for myself. Bolognese, tagliatelle bolognese. So that's like a meat and simmer down. That's not like a thing? spontaneous pasta, right? Or how tagliatelle so easy? But the bolognese takes quite a while, right? No, you do a fast one. Yeah, it's just yeah, a little bit of mirepoix, lots of chicken livers, sage. The problem is, where do you get the chicken livers? From the chicken, right? I guess. If you don't have a butcher shop. Yeah, Craig, from the chicken. Very good. <laughs> I got one in. Hey, I got Glad one you're in. There. You know? Glad you were there. Thank you. That was amazing. So astute. No, I, lots of sage, chicken livers, red wine, uh, veal, 
lamb, and uh, I'm missing an ingredient here. It just made me laugh to my, oh, pork, ground pork. Um, and I learned how to make that in Tuscany, and I stick to that. That's just brilliant. But that's one of my favorite ones to make. And then there's rabbit strozzapretti, which is just a, a rolled pasta pre-strangler uh, with rabbit and rosemary and olives. I love how dark some of the pasta names are, like strozzapretti. It's like literally like we're going to murder a priest. That's like what it means? This. Strangle the, it means the priest? It means priest-strangler. Yeah. Oh well, God. he was so hungry and he just ate it and it kind of, you know, gets a little bigger in your belly and cho- he just choked on it, I guess. Sure. Yeah. That's... I'll, I'll go with that story. Sure. Yeah, Ital- it's, like, it's true. Italian pastas and some of those dishes have sort of weird names and origins. Putinesca, stories. you know, like yeah. slutty pasta. <laughs> like, right? Right. No, yeah. that's actually how, when my when I was growing up, I You should just write a book on all bad, you know, bad words. Quirky names for <laughs> noodles. <laughs> when I was growing up, I, I I think like a lot of kids I didn't love sort of salty briny flavors and mm. I remember one of my parents' friends trying to get me to eat pasta puttanesca, and I was like, this is literally everything I hate is in this. It's capers, it's olives, it's yeah. anchovies. And then he leaned in and he said, the name means slutty pasta. And I just, I devoured the entire thing. I was yeah. like, done, this is the coolest thing I've ever eaten. The prune gnocchi that I make is, um, like, was inspired in Bergamo. You know how you walk around, and, and there was a window uh, with cookies in it, and this particular cookie, or the shape of the prune gnocchi, is um, called Nun's Tits. So yeah. go figure, right? <laughs> so you're right on. <laughs> yeah, with bizarre names. Yeah, they're all a little, you know. Yeah, we NSFW should write a taxonomy of weird, yeah, right? Italian <laughs> food names that have complicated backstories. So, uh, so number nine is almost twenty years old. I guess that yeah. anniversary is next year. So, what's going on at that restaurant right now? Uh, things coasting along. You guys still it's in the groove? Than ever, changing actually. things up. Yeah, which is so funny. It's like twenty years, right? We should be shitting our pants, <laughs> but I'm sorry, it just gets better. And we we have like the same. It's like the Cheers of Boston. I mean, we have the mo- we continue to have the regulars every week, three times a week at the bar in the cafe. And number nine, just it, it's just getting better. It goes better and better every. Every year, it's pretty amazing, and I love the chef there right now. Is um, you know he's he loves the food, he loves my food, he loves the philosophy and the vision of it. So he doesn't want to change it, which is I'm pretty lucky. Isn't it Cheers the Cheers of Boston? I think Cheers is yeah. I think it's gone though. There's no know. real Cheers, right? <laughs> There's no real. Cheers. There's no real Cheers. No. So I'm curious about that. So the chef at number nine, you know, has to work within your vision while also kind of keeping it fresh. So. Mm. I mean, like, are there some things you just, you can't change, you can't, you can't deviate from, like a few dishes? Yeah, I mean, not only will I get probably mad, but I mean, at one point I did want to take off like the steak tartare, the lamb fondue, and um, the patrons were boycotting, literally so friggin' mad at me that they're like, I'm not coming here anymore. (laughs) So we had to put them back on like the, there's a truffle gnocchi with lobster and mushrooms. There's about five or six dishes that have to stay on. And then um, he, and then he's able to create his own dishes. But as long as it's the French and Italian sort of mixed the way I like to do it, he has creative freedom, which is nice. After you opened Number Nine, um, what made you realize it was time to open another restaurant to go from one to two? You know, five years after Number Nine was open, I was getting a little bored myself, and um, you know, you hear through the grape like I didn't want to lose my staff, and I, you know, I kind of wanted to grow grow them and I probably wasn't ready but I just did it and um and then you get that bite you know opening up another restaurant another restaurant for some reason I opened up 10 restaurants in like eight years and um and and that's when I realized I should think about myself because <laughs> <laughs> I'm tired but it was fun is there a, a tipping point like three is sustainable and then like suddenly at seven you hit chaos and then at eight you're just like okay we've hit the sweet spot again or no I always felt like the second one should always be easier it should always be easier right but um I don't know if you know this but I I did I do everything three so I, I opened up B&G the butcher shop and gave birth at the same time then I opened. Oh my uh, goodness! Gave birth the physical act, not yeah, a restaurant. Yeah, like my daughter was born. <laughs> Very good. Uh, <laughs> then, um, so then I opened up Plum Produce and Stir, 
and also just signed a lease for three other spaces down on Congress Street, and then I opened those three at the same time. It's like the gas station effect. You know, even more gas stations, the more people come to fill up gas. Yeah. Oh, I've never heard that before. Oh. Well, yeah, that's kind of my... I like that. I like that way of thinking. Like create the destination. Exactly. And people will come to fill it. Exactly. I mean, you know... You have to pay rent, right, when you own a restaurant. Or if you're lucky to own the building, that's even better. But, you know, you can't – I had to create a destination because restaurants, you don't want to pay a lot of rent. It won't work. Um, so I was a pioneer down on Congress Street for restaurants. So I'm just saying if I put one restaurant down there, I would be gone by now, which I've seen it happen down there. So three creates, you know – You make a mini restaurant district. Mini malls or I mean, mini Did you just like learn that by doing it or did somebody say, I mean, you know. No, I just is... learned. Well, I always figured, well, you know, 15,000 square feet versus 5,000 square feet, it's going to be the same headache, but it might be cheaper by doing 15,000 square feet in terms of construction and blah, blah, blah. So that's the way I thought about it. So how have you seen Boston change as you've been helping seed its restaurant culture? I mean, it's it's changed. Um you know, it's changed. The good thing is, like, more restaurants are open. Um, the bad thing is that it, I think it's just like New York, too. I mean, sky high rents, lots of development. I mean, there has to be a cap. Oh, and there's so many f- commercial restaurants. Like, how many steak joints do we need in Boston? Seriously. Yeah. It's not like we're in o- Ohio or Iowa where they raise cows. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, there's so many steak joints. Um so that should be – we should cap that in the city. But um, the food scene is becoming better now, I would say, in the last two years in Boston. I think Cambridge is actually on fire, which is great. Barbara, do you think that there's any misconceptions that people have about the Boston dining scene, like people from outside of Boston? Or like what's the biggest one? Oh, I don't – you're going to have to tell me that. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't – I mean – I, I don't think we're are we. I don't even think we're on that list for dining destination yet. But hopefully we can get there. I don't. I don't think we are. Are we? I don't think we have a Michelin yet. No, no I don't think there's. A I don't think there are Michelin yet. stars. Yeah, but that's not all you need to be a dining destination. You know, we're still known for uh, local seafood, so we're still known as like New England seafood. Like, I think we finally got over the baked beans and. Um, uh, I don't know what well, baked beans. Right? Yeah. Boston I mean, baked I think beans. People still show up and want like a bowl of chowder. You yeah, know? yeah. Oh, God, yeah. And that's like, good. But find the good chowder. Right? Where yeah. do you get the good chowder? I go to Yan- Yankee Lobster. It's down in the – it's down on the fish pier. And it's a joint. It's great. And I get salmon every Friday with broccoli and fucking slaw. It's awesome. There you go. And that's one of those little, like, you know, plaid boats. <laughs> the boats are really key, right? Like, you can't have that in, they like, the picture. porcelain, you know. Yeah. No, I don't know. you need the with the, the deli wrap. You need the, the cardboard yeah. boat and the like. It's, yeah, it's all part of. I mean, it's like you were saying about going into a restaurant, telling whether it's good or not. Like, it's not just the food; it's the service. Yeah, but it's like it's not just the fish. It's also that it's really important to me that it be in like red and white checkered tissue paper. It's like you know, the first time I was in Kansas City, I went and I had ribs, and it was like the most amazing barbecue I've ever had. And dim yellow, like the paint place hasn't been painted and it's that smoky yellow. A roll of paper towels on a table. There's the owner and all his bills are out on a table and TV's going on the corner with a Jerry Springer show and then guns sold here, a big huge sign. And I was like, oh my God, I mean, this is just a scene. And it, you know, I kind of liked the way the whole scene was with the food. It just, it just fit. It was, it was kind of perfect. Do you put a lot of thought into constructing that kind of scene in your restaurants? No. No? <laughs> no. I think it's Actually, almost like that just happens, same. you know? It just happens, right? But no, I've worked my architect and designer for over 30 years, and I and they do great. They kind of know me so well that I don't need a lot going on in terms of decor. I just need it to be equal with my food in the wine program in the staff. It doesn't have to, we all have to melt. It's got to be a good marriage. How do you know when you're putting a menu together for a new place? How do you know when the menu's right? It's all about, there is a sort of trick to it and making it sound great and like less is more, right? So charred octopus with um, green almond jelly. Hold on, because I just put this on there. 
charred octopus, green almond jelly, um, potato puree, chopped almonds. And then there's pine oil in it and, you know, but you don't need to tell everybody all that because it just gets confusing, right? And then this goes with a beautiful Chablis. So that's how I do it. And I do it with Kat, my wine director. You know, she's telling me about these new wines she has or mostly about the terroir or Chablis is like chalk and oyster shells. So then that's how we do it. And I draw and paint them. Do you really? Yep. You paint all of the dishes? Yeah. And the menus? Oh, my gosh. I love that. Mm. Then I send it on my little phone. And I say, this is what I want. Really? That's, so- For, that's crazy. Yeah. I've never heard of anyone painting their dish. I've heard of sketches. And I've seen sketches before. And sometimes they're, like, barely sketches, you know? Yeah. You can have a sketch, but, like, no matter what, you know, first time you're designing a dish, it's still not going to come out the way you want it. And then, because the colors change, but the colors are in your head, like, oh, beet won't be so red, you know, like, so it's nice to paint it and say, hmm, I don't know if, yeah, it might not look right. So switch an ingredient, add lemon zest, I don't know, something like that, but that's that's how I do it. What kind of paints do you use? Um, for those, it's usually traveling when I have to send photos, so watercolors, and um, but I oil paint generally. So Really? But the Charven, there's a good art store here, but I go to the one in Nice, and it has all those, like, colors that Matisse used, you know, the real, really good paint that you don't need a medium at all. It's just you go paint to the canvas. It's so great. When you and his watercolors are like that. How'd you get into painting? When stress, when I get stressed, I just paint. And then that way I'm, my mind's just on painting for a couple hours. I usually forget to eat, smoke a cigarette. I can't. It's just like, just paint. Have you always painted? No, no, no. I self-taught. I'm just teaching myself, so... Man, you're just self-taught everything, huh? <laughs> I think I have as many art books now as I do cookbooks. I love that. So you you sketch and then you take a photo with your phone and send it to your, your staff and say, mm-hmm. this is what we got to think about. This is what we got to go to, huh? Yeah. No, this is not. It's not an option. This is what, this what is we're going Yeah. <laughs> so does a, a dish Sorry. start for you, does it start as the visual or do you start with an ingredient or mm, usually it's the it's it's cat you know what wine uh like from the Jura region which is you know it's almost it's almost like a brandy and and that makes me start to think whatever she's wanting to play around with wine wise to pair with food is usually how it goes i love that going mm. wine first mm-hmm. that makes for such interesting constr- like it gives you a parameter yeah. right you're not just staring at a blank page no and then you learn about wine as well so that's really how we do it. Isn't that and that's sort our of next book. atypical, though? I mean, don't, don't most restaurants, even at the high end or wine wine restaurants, kind of work the other way? Like, I, here is the dish. Now, where is the wine? Yeah, but I'm not like every restaurant. So uh-huh. I guess that's my I secret it. to it's, success. That's so cool. <laughs> your secret to success is secret like, to success. I, I don't do what you guys do. Oil paint your dishes and send them on your iPhone and start with the wine and then go to the food. This is mm-hmm. what I'm gathering. A few things. Kind of like that. Kind of like that. Yeah, you yeah. get that. Mm-hmm. Any other, like, core tenets to crushing it Barbara Lynch style? Yeah, if you want to be Barbara Lynch, well, I don't know if you can do that, but, you know. Um. Oh, God, no. I mean, be who you are. I yeah. think that's the best, right? My whole life I wanted to be um, Joel Rubichon because I think he's amazing. Coming out of retirement and putting um, Atelier in Paris and making the Frenchies all upset it was brilliant. And then I love Dukas because, I mean, how many friggin' Michelin star, three Michelin star restaurants could one guy own? But um, so those were always my carrots. And then now I'm really happy just to be me, Barbara Lynch. It's, it's kind of nice. So if someone's coming to Boston, has never been to your restaurants before, what's like the first experience you think they should have? Number nine. Number nine. What should they order? Prunyaki. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, the classics. Bo- bolognese, prunyaki, truffle. I'm, yeah, and the truffle gnocchi. A couple of pastas. Um, yeah, and some, I don't know. I mean, that's just so hard. Um, you know, I should just do a restaurant with all my old classics. That would be The greatest fun. hits album. Yeah. Right? <laughs> that could be fun. The very best of Barbara Lynch. Why don't more chefs do greatest hits albums? Usually right. that ends up being like the airport restaurant or something. But like an, an greatest hits. Or like the hits. Vegas place. Yeah, but like a greatest hits of some chef restaurant with integrity would be, you know, I think. Maybe really I'll cool. do that like yeah. every Friday night or something. Oh. That would be At so each fun. restaurant, right? Greatest yeah. hits night. Yeah, that could be fun. Awesome. Classic rock. 
Gold Moldies. My chef will kill me. More. <laughs> She's giving us more to do. <laughs> well, I think we're uh, about at that time of the show for something we like to call the lightning round. Do to do. Which I don't is, know. I do. Yeah. Yeah. That's the lightning we're round music, awesome. right? <laughs> well, okay. It's all of us saying do to do to our mic. Yeah. Um, for today's lightning round, we have a guest question asker, as we often do. It's our editor in chief, Amanda Clute. Oh, cool. Who grew up right outside of Boston and is super excited to talk to you. Amanda, welcome to the Upsell. Dedicated Upsell listeners might remember Amanda from the episode where she guest hosted when we spoke with oh my God Ashley Christian. Her name no Viv- Howard. Vivian Howard. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Might remember Amanda from the episode she guest hosted when we spoke with Vivian Howard <laughs> last season. It was an awesome episode. You should listen to it if you haven't already. But here's Amanda right now to ask some questions of Barbara Lynch. Hi, Barbara. Hi, Amanda. Okay, first question. What is your favorite Boston slang word? Pissa. With or without the wicked? Without the wicked. Just full pissa. Pissa. All right. That's a good, yeah. Is that all right with you? I guess, I, <laughs> sure. <laughs> <laughs> what is your go-to order at a dive bar? Oh, um, a green hornet. What's that? It's a Heineken. That's it? Well, I like the dive bars around Southie. They just, they like, Lynch, do you want your... Cup. You want your glass chilled? And I'm like, oh, that'd be awesome. And they'll take a clear plastic cup and put it in ice and, and chill it for me. And I'm, I just think that's brilliant. But no, Green Hornet, I'm not really like a, I can't drink a lot of liquor, but, um, or it'd be a shot and a, and a beer, a Heineken and a shot usually. Get it done. Yep. Okay, Amanda, what's your next question? Next question, what is your Dunkin' Donuts order? Oh, it would be the chocolate honey. No, the chocolate dipped, glazed chocolate dip one. You know, like, I don't think there's honey in it, but it's that chocolate cake one with frosting. Oh, yeah. This is a classic Boston question, too. Like Dunkin Or, Don- oh, no, wait, I forgot about the buttercrunch color. I've never heard of the buttercrunch color. That's a good one. Yeah? Yeah, it's really good. Does everyone love Dunkin' Donuts? I mean, I know that's like the stereotype. First of all, Boston, it's Dunkies. 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 Going to Dunkies. Love it. Um, a lot of people do go to Dunkin' Donuts. I just don't. I, I particularly don't like the coffee, but, um, and I'm not a big donut eater, but when they're there, I'll eat them, and that's you know that's how to You know how to navigate problem. a Dunkies. What do you want me to pick you up at Dunkies? That's kind of like the Boston. It's perfect. Right. That's perfect. I love it. I love that. Wow. That's what we're going to call the episode of the, the title of this episode. Dunkies. Barbara Lynch will pick something up for you at Dunkies. Barbara Lynch wants to know what you want to order from Dunkies. <laughs> do you put the little, what are those holes called? What the munchkins? Yeah, uh, do you put the munchkins, do you, do you dunk it in your coffee? This is the thing with Dunkin' Donuts is that, like, I, I think at a point in every human being's life that is familiar with Dunkin' Donuts, you realize that the name of the restaurant is telling you that you should be dunking your donuts in your coffee and you're like oh my god right and they use do they still sell they used to sell the donuts that had handles on them that were for what what yeah no they had these donuts they were just like regular like classic cake donuts they were the, the plainest cakiest donuts and they had a little spur of dough that like is almost so like whack. a like a male or female symbol but without the like no I details and and Allegedly, this was so that you could hold that. And dunk sh- it. Everybody involved in this, everyone in the production room is like, Helen, you are full of I shit. Mean, I'm not making this up. I'm this like, is completely true. The, the pro is more donut. The con is that <laughs> you don't need it and it's stupid. This absolutely exists. I will prove it to all of you. God damn it. Is that like a special donut cutter that looks like a handbag? If you need a handle for your donut. I want a photo of that. I will send you one. Okay. I need proof. <laughs> all right, Amanda. Next question. What's your favorite repetitive cooking task? Chopping. What do you like to chop? I like to do perfect mirepoix, and I always like to get better and better. And then it really is fucking torture to stand in that one spot for an hour and, and do the perfect cuts of brunoise sizes and stuff like that. Repetitive, repetitive, repetitive. It gets you better. Okay, so my final Boston-themed question is Goodwill Hunting or The Departed? Well, for me, which movie did I like? The Departed. I mean, it's Yeah, murder and shit. That all goes good with me and... Goodwill Hunting was too. It's good. I loved Goodwill Hunting. It was too uh, the you know the Harvard Square part and stuff. I didn't really go to Cambridge until I was in my twenties. So the departed, departed. <laughs> not, not enough people die in Goodwill Hunting. I know. Is that sick? But I'm there, just so used to like. There are no piles of coke. There's no. No. Like, yeah. So that's the way. I, yeah. Yeah. Reading yeah, reading I, your book made me think I got to see the departed again. I don't know. Yeah, you should take yeah. a look at that. Or um. 
Black Mass. That's right. That was about him too. Yeah, yeah. you got to go watch that one. I didn't see that. And read the book called Brutal. Um, that's a good book to read. How often do you watch movies that are set in Boston? No, I hate it because it's like the, they try too hard with the accents. Like, did you see Manchester by the Sea? Yeah. I didn't I didn't like Manchester by the Sea. I hated it. I God, I hated it. I thought but, it was um, like... I'm really curious. So why didn't you like that movie? It was so slow and it, like... The guy looked like a, yeah. like a fucking, I don't know. I don't know. It just pissed me off, too. But the accents were just. I can't lose kids like that. I just, that freaked me out. But, and it was, it was way too slow, too much crying, too much sadness. And um, there was just not enough stuff going on for me. It's, but, uh, um, that's that's yeah, just me. That's how I felt. And the well. accents were. The accents were over the top. I think, I think Mark Wahlberg does it all with, um, what's the teddy bear movie? Oh, Bro, Ted? Ted. Oh, God, I love that movie. <laughs> yeah. It's so much. <laughs> but the accents of, you know, the bear's got that accent. Like, I fucked a heart with parsnip. Mm. I, I, can I say that? Yes, yeah. That part. Absolutely. Yeah, I fucked a heart with a parsnip and fucking spit on it, and then I sold it to a Chinese family. Like, that's just rotten. But the accent, parsnip. Like, parsnip. Yeah. Had. Like, right. like wow. he, he gets it. And Wahlberg has that good accent. If we want to perfect our Boston accents, we will we'll spend watch time with Ted. the movie Ted. Right. And talk about fucking people with parsnips. Well, no, yeah. Pa- parsnips. Parsnips. Um, I'm not even going to try. I'm, I'm not going to. I'm sorry that I even did that. Um, so it's fine. That's going to be my phone ringer now is you saying that. Oh, no, no. <laughs> well, Barbara Lynch, your memoir, Out of Line, is available and in real life bookstores and also in internet bookstores and all sorts of places. And if folks want to eat at your restaurants, they will find all of them in Boston. Yeah beautiful Boston. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining yeah, us here for, on Upsell. Uh, thanks for chatting with Thank us, Thank you. This Barbara. was so yes. fun. And a reminder to all of you, if you are not subscribed to the Eater Upsell, you should be. And if you are subscribed, you should give us a five-star rating on the iTunes podcast store. And you should also tell, like, this week I'm going to say three. You should, tell, you should tell three people who are important to you and whose taste you value that they should also subscribe to Tell Eater three Upsell. people in the Boston area, specifically, this week. Yes. Oh, I'm on it. You guys, yeah, I'll be... Someone, yeah, I'll be pushing this. Yeah, Barbara Lynch says it's cool. This is really cool. So, yay! The Eater Upsell is recorded at Vox Media Studios in Manhattan and Los Angeles. Your hosts are me, Helen Rosner, and Greg Morabito, that other guy whose voice you hear on every episode. Our executive producer is Maureen Giannone. Our associate producer and editor is Daniel Janine. Our editorial producer is Monica Burton. Our studio team is Miles Ewell, Alex Ulreich, Paige Bethman, and Stephanie Broderick. And our editor-in-chief and fearless leader is Amanda Clute. But of course, of all of these people, the one who makes all of this possible, without whom none of this could exist, without whom we would just wither and die, is you, dear listener. You. Thank you for listening to what we do here, and thank you for being your beautiful self.